right. In a 5-4 decision, the rail splitters have decided to dedicate an episode to Lincoln and the Supreme Court. the Abraham Lincoln podcast. My name is Jeremy and writing the for the majority this evening is Rail Splitter Mary. Hey Rail Split Nash, how's it going? And of course, writing the dissenting opinion would be our own and everyone's favorite Rail Splitter Nick. What's up everybody who's trying to decide is this covid, is this allergies or is this just a cold? <laughs> And he's also known as Obi-Wan Nakobe right now because you guys can't see him, but I thought he was wearing a robe when we first started, and he looks kind of like Obi-Wan Kenobi right now. Yes, it is a Supreme Court episode, but it's more looking like a Jedi slash uh, bathrobe than a uh, than a judicial chamber's robe. <laughs> so uh, we do want to talk about the Supreme Court uh, this week. For obvious reasons, of course, we are all mourning the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which we talked, I believe, a little bit about last episode. If I, we've been away for a little bit, um, and then, of course, with the Amy Comey Barrett uh, hearings and possible confirmation on the horizon, I'm sure a lot of you all are thinking Supreme Court. And of course, we want to look to Abraham Lincoln, and he also, of course, has been mentioned in this whole Supreme Court filling a vacancy in an election year. Conversation was brought up by vice presidential candidate Senator Kamala Harris um, in that debate. Um, I don't I, the fly, I think, was in the area when she said it. I'm not that we haven't confirmed yet whether it had landed on Vice President Pence's uh, noggin or not at that point. But before we get into that, Nick has brought us a little bit of news in Lincoln land. Yes, if you are part of the Facebook uh, rail splitter group. You probably saw this news. If you're not, you should join. Uh, a lot of good talk going on there. But this past weekend, uh, there was a protest out in Portland. Uh, it kind of had the, I don't know if it was official or unofficial name, of Indigenous People's Day of Rage. And this protest led to um, at least two statues going down of two former presidents. One, Teddy Roosevelt. The other, Abraham Lincoln. So, obviously, this caused some people to be upset, um, being that it's Abraham Lincoln, a uh, statue that went down. Um, you know, I, I definitely think when we're talking about Roosevelt Lincoln here, this is a lot different than talking about the Confederate statues. So, um, definitely recognizing that, you know, the Confederate statues that were put up to, you know, remember the Confederacy or to send us, uh, you know, a message to surrounding communities. Um, you know, were there more definitely um, a symbol of hate based on why they were put up, the speeches that were given around them, as opposed to the Lincoln statue specifically dealing with this. Uh, one of the reasons Lincoln statue was probably targeted, um, I have not heard from anybody who dropped the statue itself, but um, Lincoln is behind the largest mass hate. Well, I don't know if I worded that right. The largest mass hanging took place during Lincoln's time, and it was of 38 Dakota individuals up in Minnesota. So 
um, from the Sioux tribe. And basically what you had happen at this time, it was, you know, Minnesota was an area of territorial disputes uh, between native population and the white settlers. Um, And things had built up over time and it spilled over into conflict on numerous occasions. Um, So you had members of the Dakota Nation feuding with white settlers in the area. Uh, Got to the point where Lincoln felt he had to address it. General Pope gets sent up there to stop the violence. Why he's there, he eventually sentences um, or the military um, ends up sentencing 303 natives to death. Lincoln finds out about this. Um, He gets it. And he decides he's going to look into it. So on our Facebook page, I do want to give a shout out to David Kent's article where he's kind of he was taking a little bit of a deeper dive, giving some details behind that Um, kind of his stance was on that, that Lincoln's role in this often gets misinterpreted. Um, and, And we'll talk a little bit about that. But Lincoln took a closer look at each of the death sentences, um, and he wanted more information. He got that, and he decided he um, he commuted a lot of the sentences, basically. So instead of the 303, um, he basically ends up working that number down to 38. Um, and David Kent had a nice quote from Lincoln, um, kind of talking about how he came to that decision. Um, So this is a quote from Lincoln. Anxious to not act with so much clemency as to encourage another outbreak on the one hand, nor with so much severity to be real to be real cruelty on the other. I cause careful examination of the records of trials to be made in view of the first ordering. The execution of such has been proved guilty of violating females. Contrary to my expectations, only two of this class were found. I then directed a further examination and a classification of all who were proven to have participated in massacres as distinguished from participants in battles. This class numbered 40 and included the two convicted of female violation. One of the number is strongly recommended by the commission, which tried them to commute the commute. uh, Somebody say that for me. Commutation. I'm not reading the Commutation. Yes, to 10 years imprisonment. I have ordered the other 39 to be executed on Friday, the 19th instant. One of those 39 ended up not being part of it, obviously. Um, so kind of showing how Lincoln came to his conclusion. He took a look at the evidence he was presented. Um, the two individuals who were accused of rape, he sentenced them. And then everybody else that he felt committed massacres instead of in a battle, um, he commuted there. David Kent goes on to argue, you know, based on that, you know, he saved like over 90% of the individuals themselves um, was kind of his argument. So this could have been a lot worse. Lincoln took time to actually look at it and just had a rubber stamping it um, and had, you know, cut that number down drastically. Yes, it's unfortunate, obviously, that the 38 uh, individuals were hanged. To me, the question really comes to what was the evidence that Lincoln was using? You know, where is that evidence coming from? How concrete was that evidence there? We've heard many stories over the years about how evidence has not been fairly, you know, collected or shared with others. Uh, I'm not saying that necessarily Lincoln made a mistake, um, but I think that brings up to some points there. You know, 
obviously you probably had the military gathering evidence where they doing all this on the up and up. There's been a lot of historical examples over time where that isn't, you know, that hasn't been the case. I don't know enough detail behind this to really dive into that, but I think that is a valid question to ask. Um, and there was, I did find a quote from um, an associate professor over at the Minnesota Law School. Um, and Carroll's opinion was, Chomsky's opinion was, the trials of Dakota were conducted unfairly in a variety of ways. The evidence was sparse. The tribunal was biased. The defendants were underrepresented in unfamiliar proceedings conducted in a foreign language. And authority for conveying the tribunal was lacking. More fundamentally, neither the military commission nor the reviewing authorities recognized that they were dealing with the aftermath of a war, fought with with a sovereign nation, and that the men who surrendered were entitled to treatment in accordance with that status. So obviously this professor is pointing out that based on her opinion that the evidence was not on the up and up, was not concrete enough. Did Lincoln know that? Should he have known that? You know, that stuff I don't know because I just haven't dived enough into it. Um, There's a letter from one of the individuals who was actually hanged, who sent to uh, a local chief. You have deceived me. You told me that if we follow the vice of General Sibley and gave ourselves to the whites, all would be well. No innocent would no innocent man would be injured. I have not killed, wounded, or injured a white man or any white person. I have not participated in the plunder of their property, and yet today I am set apart for execution, must die in a few days, while men who are guilty will remain in prison. My wife is your daughter, my children are your grandchildren. I leave them all in your care and under your protection. Do not let them suffer when my children are grown up. Let them know that their father died because he followed the vice of his chief without having the blood of a white man to answer for the great spirit. So we gave you, there's a collection of three different quotes here, kind of taking a look at it from three different angles. Um, I think Lincoln's record when it comes to Native American stuff, and if you're looking from a Native American lens, um, at that time, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was known to have been corrupt. Um, he didn't address that. Obviously, there was a civil war going on. He passed two major acts, the Pacific Railway Act and Homestead Act, that drastically changed the landscape out west. Um, and definitely, if you look from a Native American perspective, um, they would look at that, I am sure, in a negative light um, because that led to a lot of slaughter, a lot of massacres, fueled some of the um, what is known as the Indian Wars. Um, so I, I think it's a fascinating topic, Lincoln and Native Americans. Um, obviously a terrible situation. Could have been worse. Um, Lincoln did commute, you know, ninety per- about 293, if I'm doing the math correct off the top of my head, um, of the sentences. So I don't know. Thoughts from you guys? Yeah, I think – and thank you for doing the, the, the heavy lifting on the research for that, Nick – um, I think that th- th- this is, this is the quandary of every Lincoln enthusiast, Lincoln fan. Like, um, th- th- these are undeniably cruel things. He's on the wrong side of history. He, you know, the, their blood is on his hands in many ways and there's nothing, you know, and, and as we go down, you know, anytime you, tr- you start to go down the road of like, I don't even know if I would say defending him, but like justifying or talking about the time and place, like 
like this is without a doubt horrible and, and terrible and there's no way to justify it that said i don't know if there's any other president before lincoln or or of that era or anyone else who would have been president at the time who would have done nearly what he did or maybe I should say not did, but like didn't do right. Like all 300 of 300 and whatever of them almost certainly would have been hanged under almost any other president. I, I believe this is all conjecture. Obviously I have nothing to base that on, but a civil war was going on. He took the time. He, I, and it feels to me as if he spared as many as he could in a political world, right? Had he spared them all, this could have been, and I'm not, this is not a justification, please don't get me wrong, but that, that may, he, I, I feel in his mind anyway, he probably spared or commuted as many as he possibly could. Had he done all of them or all, but you know, two or three who may have been a little bit more justified. I don't know. Um, that could have been, you know, too high of a political price for the, for what he was trying to do, the game he was playing, which was to keep the union together and enslavement. Um, and, and I do think that he, he should get a little bit more of a pass on the legislation that led to the Indian wars. Cause there's no way for him to know that, you know, yeah. this was going to end up, mm-hmm. you know, in this situation. Yeah. Now, as far as me, now, being, hold on real quick. Yeah. I wasn't like saying that to point a finger at him. Oh, I don't think you were. Yeah. Okay, I didn't, okay. It didn't come across that way. It did not okay, come across gotcha. that way. No, no, no. Okay. Um, but it's worth noting. And I will say this as someone who, you know, takes Lincoln with his for everything, right? His, his weaknesses, his strengths. Use, I use him as a role model. He's a hero of mine as, as he is for many, you know, his humanity is what makes him real, right? He, he's, he made a ton of mistakes and this is certainly a huge one. Um, he being, him being a hero of mine, I fault the people who took his statue down. Not at all. Like to me, that's, I think it's fine. I think, I think that there's quite a lot of um, it takes it takes quite a lot of audacity to to shame uh, indigenous people and, and descendants of indigenous people to say you're taking public property and destroying it. You know, there's that's that's wrong. This belongs to the people, and you're taking it for yourselves. Like the irony of that is just so staggering to me that so much of communal property of theirs was was all of it was stolen from them. Um, I have no problem whatsoever with this, with the statue coming down. Um, you know, this, our, our nation's history with indigenous people is, is I feel, um, the worst, right? I mean, enslavement, obviously I don't want to get into which is worse enslavement or treat or treatment of indigenous people, but those are the two, um, just obviously there's no, there's no superlatives that could amply describe it, but, as far as things we need to own about our history and, and, and look at and, and learn from and grow from the original sins of, of our country, our enslavement and in the genocide of, of indigenous people. So um, I don't have any problem with them pulling down a, a statue or a monument for a hero of mine. Um, I think the fact that we're even talking about it, they, they accomplished something because the conversation needs to happen. I completely agree with everything you said, Jeremy, and kudos to you, Nick, for doing the heavy lifting on this as well. Um, Coming from a country in Canada whose treatment of Native peoples has also been very 
it's been downright horrible and you know we finally started acknowledging it which is good um but yeah jeremy what you said about the statue coming down i completely agree with you and i think too lincoln did what he could you know the fact that he took it from you know over 300 down to in the high 30s you know that's something and if you look at how lincoln was whenever he had an execution to sign for a soldier he looked at it and he didn't want to do it and even too if you look at you know when it came up to the end of the civil war that scene in lincoln where he's talking with grant and he says i just kind of want to turn a blind eye and have davis run off to britain or something like that you know he didn't want to have to deal with putting people to death probably because there had been so much death already and i think this is just you know it shows more of his character his empathy and all that that he just i i think he thought things could be solved another way you know yeah and i think his his own personal losses like you know just added to his character and that i think part of the reason he was more merciful probably than any i believe i i truly believe than anyone else would have been or anybody who was reasonably who would have reasonably had a chance at reaching the presidency or position of high power was because of his qualities his character qualities but also he had experienced loss in 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 the deepest way possible with one with you know multiple children um so i don't know what role that played in it but um but yeah, I mean, the, 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 I think the big issue too is like, yes, these are all horrible and egregious things, but it's this is just a page of a long history of just gruesome, horrible, awful, you know, stories that that, that do not get the attention that they need, um, whether it's Indigenous Peoples Day or any other day. Mm. Um, and the fact, part of the reason that they don't get that attention is because the genocide was was nearly, I don't know if I would use the word successful, but nearly complete, I guess. Um, there are very few Indigenous people in the eastern half of the country uh, because they're they, because of genocide. You know, there, there's more of them out west because they because expansion happened a little bit later. Uh, but just just a horrible part of our history that that, that we that we that we still need to to make sure we continue to to repair the, mm-hmm. to the best we can. I mean, what's more beneficial to Lincoln's legacy if it would have stayed up and we never talked about this, or it getting pulled down and we are discussing it? Which led me to a quote that the tattooed historian threw out there: "Good history will make you feel uncomfortable." Bad history will make you feel flawless. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's great that we're talking about it. You know, I think it's, you know, if something like that has to happen, let it happen so that the issues can be discussed and so that they can come to the surface and we can figure out how to solve them. Because I think that's what, like, ultimately, and that's what Lincoln would want. I mean, we're talking about a guy that would, you know, if we could ask him, what do you think of all the statues? He'd be like, yeah. No. Well, that's no, the other no. thing too. Like now we're down to like ninety nine thousand five hundred forty eight statues for Lincoln. Like, yeah. Like you're pissed off that that one came down. Just go to the next town. I'm sure there's one there. Yeah. Run. Like it's... you can't you can't turn around in this country without running into a Lincoln monument. No. So I think we'll I think we're yeah. fine. If it makes people dig deeper into the history and explore the issues, then by all means, that is absolutely what needs to happen. And that's why I am. You know what? 
I side with these guys in doing this because the fact we're talking about it, bringing these issues to light, that people can hear about them, that's what matters and that's what needs to happen. Well, I think what's happened in America specifically is we've have sw- or we've come to really believe in American exceptionalism, mm-hmm. which is nothing more than a myth, and it has led us to have or look at America in a flawless light, which has really, I believe, put us in these problems that we are in the COVID pandemic in a way some of us respond, thinking that we are the you know the best in the world that we're superior that we don't have to do little things that other people around there and i think covid has really exposed that we are not exceptional um nobody's exceptional that we are just right there with everybody else and i think if we spent more time looking at the good in history which we've done plenty of but also looked at the flaws we'd be a lot better along and I guess one of the good things about that is a lot of the stuff that's happened in 2020 is putting that stuff out there on the table to no longer be ignored. Yep, absolutely. Well, and I think that that's, that's part of the reason I'm proud of this show and I'm proud to be involved with, with the two of you is like this show is very much up. We praise Lincoln. We, you know, we, mm-hmm. we, we, and, and at no point I feel we acknowledge his flaws. Like we learn, like, not only do we acknowledge him, we accept them like as part of who he is yeah. and, and wrestle with that. And, and this is still a show for by of, and for the people No, for Lincoln's fans. Right. I mean, that's yeah. who our audience is. That's who we are. Um, but if this were a show that was like, he is that, that we deify him one, I would be, I don't think we'd be doing a service to ourselves or our listeners, but two, like it's not accurate, but that, I think that's a good example of, if, if our history was all positive, Lincoln was the best person who ever lived, um, which he may have, I believe in many ways he was mm-hmm. because, but like his flaws are part of who he was. Exactly. They're part of who we are like, right. Um, and we learn from them in weeks and, 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 and I look at him as a flawed person who, who made exceptional impact on the world and did, I feel more for oppressed people than any other white male has done before or since. Um, which is not to say he's perfect, which is not to say there's not things that I absolutely abhor about what he did or who he was, but let's, you know, let's take people as who they are. Cause outside of religious circles, there's no perfect people. So, no. um, and, and that's, and this is kind of, you know, and I think that part of our show too is like using Lincoln as a, example of just the history of our country and our world and humanity as a whole. So, um, so I think it's important, Nick and I, Nick and Mary, both, I appreciate your insights on, on really one of Lincoln's major failures and major flaws, um, which is also of course, one of the United States and the world's really major flaws is, is the treatment of indigenous people. So um, it is important to honor indigenous people's day in, in early October. And, and it's, it's good that we've transitioned from, celebrating a, an enslaver and a murderer in the first white person, arguably not even the first, not arguably one of the first white people to, to come to the, what they would call the new world and, and transition that's honor the people who were his victims and many others victims. And I believe you and me boys live in a city that officially recognizes indigenous people's day. We do. And yeah. I, uh, I started off just kind of a little, uh, you know, just trying to be a little uh, 
a little bit of good trouble, I guess, or just maybe even being a smart ass. And I would put it on all of our school stuff, indigenous people's day and people would roll their eyes. But you know, now it's, it's a thing in, in our district. And I'm proud to work in our school district. Um, we didn't, we didn't say indigenous people's day, but we stopped calling it Columbus day and now we call it fall break. So baby steps. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have, we have national indigenous people's day here in Canada too. I just Googled it. It's June 21st. Oh, nice. And you know, yeah. And Canada obviously has a long and, and troubled history as well, but yeah, we do. We, um, we finally started, you know, recognizing it. And I, as I've said before, I work in, in my county's library system and, you know, we get new books in every week. Um, the amount of books I see coming in now that are starting to talk about the residential schools, about the treatment of the natives is just, it makes me, you know, I'm, I'm like, good. I'm glad this history is finally being put out there. And it's not just, you know, books for adults to read. It's, you know, for, you know, elementary school children to read too, which is good. I'm glad they're learning about it. I didn't, I mean, I learned about it a little bit in school, but not to the extent that I feel that I should have. Not to the extent mm-hmm. to have the understanding of just what was done. And that's finally being done now. So mm-hmm. I'm really happy that my country is taking the stance they are to face up to that and just, you know, recognize, yeah, this was wrong. Agreed. Agreed. So now we're going to switch gears if there's a way to somehow <laughs> do that to the Supreme Court. So obviously the Supreme Court is a, is is certainly a topic of conversation here in the United States. I think specifically the um, conversation around the Supreme Court is twofold. One, how appointments can do and should happen, and also what the role of the court is. And I think Abraham Lincoln's relationship and actions with, toward, and around the Supreme Court are very important uh, historically now. So we're going to talk all about Abraham Lincoln and the Supreme Court, um, and we'll, we will mention uh, some things along the lines of Senator and Vice Presidential Candidate Kamala Harris talking about Lincoln making an appointment late in his term and after an election, but before an inauguration, um, and all of those um, details. Um, so... First, and I don't know, Mary, if you wanted to take this, because um, I actually don't know who actually put this in the show notes between you and Nick. Um, we'll talk a little bit of background information about the Supreme Court for a refresher um, for our listeners. So yeah, sure. let's talk a little bit about the Supreme Court and then go into Lincoln's role in All it. Right. Yep, I can for sure do that. Okay, so the U.S. Supreme Court was established in 1789 by Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution. So it can be just comprised of six members, but most of its history, it's been nine. The number um, is set by Congress, not the Constitution. And the court first convened for the first time on February 2nd, 1790. The first chief justice was John Jay. And Lincoln would have first encountered the Supreme Court when he was in Washington as a congressman. And he would have attended sessions of the U.S. Supreme Court, um, would have heard Daniel Webster argue a case, and he pro- he most likely saw Roger Taney. Taney, how do you say his last name? Is it 
I believe it's tawny. Tawny, tawny. Okay. Which is not phonetical at all. I believe tawny. that's how it is. Okay. Well, my Canadian accent screwing that one up. <laughs> um, and then, so Roger Tawny is actually Chief Justice during Lincoln's presidency, although he will pass away on October twelfth, eighteen sixty four. Which we're going to talk about more of what happens after that later on. Mm-hmm. And he was appointed Chief Justice in eighteen thirty six. And he will be Chief Justice not only during, you know, like Bleeding Kansas and all that, when tensions are running high leading up to the Civil War, but he's going to be the Chief Justice during much of the Civil War. And prior to that, he serves as Attorney General, Secretary of Treasury under President Andrew Johnson, or Andrew Johnson, oh my God, Andrew Jackson. Um, and he's also the first Catholic to serve on the Supreme Court, which I found interesting. Um so many decisions that he makes during this time, especially those relating to slavery, are met with a lot of controversy. The most famous of these would be the Dred Scott decision in 1857. Yep. So if I could, I'm sorry, Mary, just to jump yep, in real quick. Ahead. So yep. looking at the arc of history of the Supreme Court, so I think it's important to note, and I, you know, sometimes kind of, I, I, I'm interested in Supreme Court history as, you know, just kind of obviously as a hobby. But so Roger Tawney is the fifth chief justice of the United States, which is interesting in a couple of respects. One, you know, you get all the way to the end, you know, essentially the end of the 16th president. He's only the fifth chief justice. But really, I would argue, in effect, he was the second because the Supreme Court doesn't really become what it is even even remotely what it is now until John Marshall becomes the chief justice in 1801. So you have John Jay, of course, is the first one and, and the, and the country is, is just getting started. Um, you know, he's, you know, he was one of the federalist paper writers and, you know, a federalist yeah. and, you know, very important person, but he's, he's chief justice for, for just short of six years. His successor is Chief Justice for 138 days, um, John Rutledge, and then Oliver Ellsworth is the one. It follows him for about five years, so you go about ten years with, you know, two. I mean, really three, but effectively two Chief Justices, and there's really not any hugely major cases that have impacts for a long time. Um, because the country is still kind of starting, George Washington's presidency kind of. You know, he ran unopposed, extremely popular, you know, so just the political landscape was much different. Well, then John Marshall becomes the chief justice of the United States, and he's chief justice for 34 plus years, which is an insane amount of time for, you know, out of the first, you know, 45-ish years of the country, John Marshall is chief justice for over 34 of them, and he really significantly increases and, and grows the role of the court. So it goes from being Supreme Court in name to being Supreme Court in practice with the major and major, major, major contribution or development of the creation of judicial review. So it doesn't say in the Constitution specifically that the Supreme Court has the ability to declare laws unconstitutional. John Marshall essentially makes that happen. Um, in an early case, I believe it was Marbury versus Madison. And he's essentially running the judicial system as chief justice of the United States for 35 years. Well, when he died, 
Roger Tawney becomes the chief justice and he's chief justice for 28 years. So between the two of them, you've got, you know, 60, 60 odd years um, with just two people and both of their influences over the, the, you know, pre-Civil War antebellum period in the United States history um, really can't be understated. And Roger Tawney, um, John, John Marshall's, you know, looked at as, as a, um, really the defining member in many ways, the, the father of the Supreme court. Um, but Roger Tawney was, uh, was not, not a good person. <laughs> so, oh. um, and so he had, he had unbelievable power, um, probably, you know, more power because chief justices after him really didn't have quite the same level of influence really until you get into the 20th century. Um, there's really, you know, it's, he and John Marshall were, were singular powers, I think, in the history of the court. Um, so anyway, that's kind of what led us here. So I think it's an important, as you look at the arc of history of the Supreme Court, to note that you have essentially two really hugely powerful figures, and Tony being one of them, um, and, and his decisions largely influenced the either the start of the Civil War, the delay of the start of the Civil War, the continuation of enslavement, the empowerment of enslavement, and many things. And of course, um, and if you, I don't know if you want to continue talking, uh, the main one being the Dred Scott decision. Yeah, no, no, the Dred Scott decision is, is the major one that everybody talks about. And I think, you know, the one that definitely needs to be, be mentioned here is that, that, that I think one is one of the ones that plays into why the Civil War you know, happened and it was a key thing during the Civil War as well, I think, too. Just to say that African Americans were not basically they're not people, so Yeah, know. I mean, I like how you said that, Mary, because that you know, that's essentially the ruling because you know, if you go into the legalese of it, it's yeah. you know, well, you know, crossing state lines and the right to sue and blah blah blah, but essentially it's that's what it was. It was a dehumanizing of yeah, enslaved yeah. people. You're, you're he, not a person. You're a piece of property. That, right. That's basically what he was. He, that's basically what he was saying to them. And, and literally, his words were that black Americans, quote, in his opinion, quote, had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. So you have the Constitution of the United States, which doesn't explicitly mention race or enslaved people. Of course, it, it, it it's very clear that it refers to both of those things. But Tawny just comes straight out and says that the white man has no the black the black Americans have no rights that white men white men need to respect, and that becomes now because of judicial review and the supremacy of the court mm-hmm. becomes the law of the land, um, and is it certainly a catalyst uh, for? The Civil War, certainly a, a battle cry for abolition, the abolitionist movement. Uh, but that that particular case is among the and I think you could, I don't I wouldn't, but I think you could make an argument the most significant Supreme Court decision, it perhaps is. in history. It, it it is. It's and it's actually it's been called like the most horrific Supreme Court decision in history. And you think about it, like this is happening at a time. You know, and I'm just thinking this because I've been watching the Good Lord Bird, John Brown miniseries. <laughs> this is happening when John Brown's doing all this stuff too, bleeding Kansas and all that. So, so yeah, this is like this is I think the one decision of the Supreme Court that 
is kind of like it's one of those things that factors into this is why we are going to go into a civil war. Can we just talk about how he looks like a white racist real quick? Oh, ta- ta- Tawny? He does. Oh, he yeah, does. he fucking does. He does. I mean, he really does. Like him and like Calhoun. Oh, like, God. Both those of two, like if you go, all right, picture a white racist from the <laughs> yeah, Civil War they era. They would be the poster Bam. boys. Well, in the, not to get too far off into this tangent, uh, but Calhoun, I think, is like if we're judging people by appearances, he was like <laughs> – he had a very long career and like early in his career, he was like a very, he looks like Jim Harbaugh. If you look up him and Jim Harbaugh, <laughs> he looks like Jim Harbaugh, but like he was a very nice looking person. But by the time he's like, like right priest of warriors, he's like, like I looks like a, something out of like a 1930s. He looks movie. kind of like doc Brown. If doc Brown were like 90 years old. And yeah. Right. Like, like there was some sort of like, like if Doc Brown used the DeLorean to go to 2020 and then came back to talk to Marty, yeah. he would look like John C. Calhoun. Like he would. Marty, you can't go to 2020. <laughs> great Scott. Yeah, great, great Scott Marty. <laughs> oh man, I challenge you to find a podcast who can go off the rails as well as we go off the rails. Is Doc Brown the actor who plays him? Is he dead or alive? Christopher Lloyd, he's got Christopher Lloyd. He's still alive. I actually saw him. I I was at a Toronto Comic Con, and I was outside sitting on a bench as I was leaving, and I got to watch Doc Brown have a cigarette with Jordy LaForge. Wow! Yeah, great Scott. I think is the proper thing. That was what I was like. Holy shit! So wait a minute. The reading rainbows guy smokes. Yeah, he he and Doc Brown were out having cigarettes together. I did not go over and say hi to them. I just kind of waved to them and they waved back. That was That's pretty it. awesome. You yeah. should have got a picture. It would have been a great picture. It it would have, but I was like, no, you know what? These two are on a break. They've been seeing people all day. I'm not even going to go over. So I waved LeVar at them Burton. from the bench. And took then, me a minute. I, I wanted to use his name. LeVar Burton. Yeah, LeVar Burton. Yeah, no, but yeah. I, I saw Doc Brown and Jordy LaForge having cigarettes together on a bench in Toronto at a Comic-Con. More wow. importantly, we need the John C. Calhoun biopic with Christopher Lloyd. Yes. As old John C. I don't know why we need that. We don't really need that movie at all because the only one we do need is Chester A. Arthur, my boy. Your boy? Yeah. Oh, and um, just to throw it out there, Back to the Future Part 3 is as good as Part 1. Ooh, yep. statement. Yeah. That is ludicrous. Chris, all right, we're gonna go down to it because that is. <laughs> I'm definitely the dissenting voice on that opinion. That is nice. So thanks for bringing it back to the uh, Supreme Court. <laughs> okay, back no to the problem. Supreme Court That's, now. I am usually the one who gets us back on the rails. So, and, and please <laughs> challenge me on this. If you Google young John C. Calhoun and tell me he does not look like Jim Harbaugh, that is, that is something I will I will I will take challenges on that. All right, I think I'm hosting, so maybe it's my job to get us back on track. I don't it know is. if that's quite possible, but actually, no, we're talking about this, Dred ha- Scott. this actually happens on our sibling podcast, Civil War Breakfast Club. We get happens all the time. So you're saying it's your fault? <laughs> we see we see the common denominator here. Yeah. Okay. Fine. It's me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and I think 
looking at, you know, I think we, we point to the Dred Scott decision and, you know, officially it's Dred, Scott v, Dred Scott v. Sanford, where, and just to give you a little bit of background, you know, yes, the effective ruling is that, that black Americans have no rights, but Dred Scott was an enslaved person who was brought to a free state, I believe it was Michigan, and then sued for his freedom, saying that he was in a state which you know, and sl- slavery was not allowed. So they, because they weren't following the state's rights, he should be free. To me, this decision is fascinating because the whole structure of enslavement was built on this state's rights argument that the states had the right to choose. So then Dred Scott goes to a state that has chosen not to enslave people and says like, I can't be enslaved because of state's rights. And the Supreme court rejected that claim and said that the state's, had to enforce it. So this decision, I think, is important because of what Lincoln's role with the Supreme Court becomes. Because Lincoln's relationship with that particular ruling was to completely ignore its it as precedent. Like the Emancipation Proclamation, for example, basically the Supreme Court now has precedent where they've decided it's constitutional it follows the constitution to enforce enslavement anywhere in the United States. And the emancipation proclamation says, no, that's not how it's going to be. And at the time, political uh, popular opinion, especially in the North and in the union um, would support that. So the Supreme court kind of just kept its mouth shut, but Lincoln essentially just, I don't even want to say ignores that, but kind of flip, gives a middle finger to that ruling throughout his presidency. Uh, But as we transition into Lincoln's role with the Supreme court, I do think it's important to mention that Lincoln had was on record with his opinion of the Supreme court kind of rejecting its supremacy, saying that the people should be the, those who determine that not the, um, not the court. Um, So he was actually kind of in favor of reducing the power of the Supreme Court, which is I find interesting, you know, him being an attorney and um, and looking at the court now, because now the court's role is is unquestioned. It's unchallenged. Like if the Supreme Court decides something, that's it. It is accepted as final. And there's now decades and, you know, a century probably where you can look at that as precedent. Lincoln, in his first inaugural, talks talks really directly about the court. Um, and, and arguably in strong, you know, the strongest language he uses about the Supreme Court. And he says, if if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably forced by the decisions of the Supreme Court, the instant they are made, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent tribunal. So what he's saying is, if the, if the big questions are decided by the Supreme Court, you've taken the power away from the people, which to me is a hugely prescient argument because now I think people on all sides of the political spectrum, when the Supreme Court rules against how they feel, feels that that power is taken away from the people. So many, many times I think you'll see this this push even up to today. And of course, abortion, I think, is, you know, in, in, in the, a woman's right to, to her own body, however you want to word it. Um, is kind of like the, you know, tends to be the issue uh, before the Supreme Court. And I think both sides are saying the same thing. Like, 
the Supreme Court decides is you're you're taking away the decisions of the people to of their religious freedom, or you're taking away the rights of the people to their own bodies or to, or to make their own medical decisions. Um, and, and basically, what Lincoln is saying here is that the Supreme Court takes away power from the people, which I think is there's a lot to that, but. I feel that way when I'm looking at decisions that I disagree with. When I look at Brown versus Board or Roe versus Wade or mm-hmm. or I don't I can't remember the ruling, but the, the ruling on same sex marriage or marriage equality I should say or or even affordable character, whatever it is, like you're not you're affirming the power of the people when you uphold um these these issues, you know, when you strike down things that may not be the will of the people or <laughs> the will of me, I don't know. Um you know, it, it's, it's an interesting question, I guess, about justice and what is justice. You know, it would be justice just because I feel like I need to owe you guys explanation why I was on my phone so long. If they ruled against neck beards, because John C. Calhoun has a ridiculous neck beard. <laughs> oh, that's right. He does, too. <laughs> Sorry, I've been distracted the last 10 minutes looking at John C. Calhoun's neck beard. <laughs> <laughs> Does young John C. Calhoun resemble John Harbaugh? Is, am I right in that at least? You are right about that. He did okay. not have a neck beard in that. Dude, the neck beard is like if I shaved my whole face and kept nothing but the portion that's on my neck. It is gross. Okay, no, that's wrong. It no, is like a- you make a good point, Nick, because I think people erroneously <laughs> call neck beards like chin beards. Sometimes they call neck beards. Yep. Like his was literally it's it's his neck. It's it does yeah, not touch nothing that could be considered his face is touched by facial hair. Who it's does like that? His, it's, it's almost like a maybe a throat beard. It's it's really it's really horrible. Who does it's, that? It looks super long too. It's like poking out of his collar. Ew. Oh god. I just I don't know, man. Ew, don't David. know. Sorry, I've derailed this kid. <laughs> it needed to be said. <laughs> I, I felt like it did. Air your grievances. <laughs> uh, okay, so coming back to Abraham Lincoln in the Supreme Court, which is why you all have tuned in. Uh <laughs> Perhaps we'll title this episode Calhoun's Neckbeard. I don't know. <laughs> but the we're going to talk a little bit about legal issues that arise in Lincoln's presidency um, and how that is handled. Because Roger Taney is still the Chief Justice of the United States. You know, I, you know, talking about peaceful transitions of power and, you know, dissent and agreements in different parties, I find it fascinating that roger tawney was the person who swore in abraham lincoln using the bible the bible that they used the two of them touched barack obama was sworn into office and our current president was sworn into office all with the same bible yeah um so you know i i think that it's maybe a good thing about peaceful transition of power that Roger Taney swore in Abraham Lincoln, who could not have been more opposed to, to each other's positions. Um, but the big legal issue in Lincoln's presidency, of course, is, is habeas corpus yep. and what he did with that. So, Mary, if you wanted to talk a little bit about yep. that. Yep. And I'm not going to like go into too much detail with it. I actually like, I looked at the research I had done for our episode about habeas corpus. So if you want to go back and listen to that one for more detail do that um but what it means the writ of habeas corpus literally means that you have the body in latin so it's a court order to a person or agency holding someone in custody to deliver the imprisoned individual to court and show a valid reason for that person's imprisonment so what that means is basically like lincoln suspended that in certain areas during the civil war so basically it's like you can be arrested without reason like you can just be like 
you look suspicious. I don't like the way you look. Hey, you have a neck beard. You're going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that's basically how it was. Um, so it was on April 27th, 1861, that Lincoln issues an order to General Win- Winfield Scott, which authorizes him to suspend the writ of habeas corpus, um, but only near any line between Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., including the border and slave state of Maryland. So he does that. And that's yeah, because- and habeas corpus is, is still an issue. You know, that yep. that was brought before courts and at least discussed with Guantanamo Bay and suspected terrorists and because um, many, many people who were suspected of being terrorists uh, did have their writ of habeas corpus suspended. I think the specific issue there was they weren't, I don't believe they were United States citizens, so they didn't have that right. But anyway, it's not as if that was an old issue or is an old issue. And the reason that, um, the reason Lincoln was able to do that was sec- was Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution is the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion and invasion, the public safety may require it. Um, so Lincoln felt that he was definitely well within, you know, his powers of being president or whatever, that he was able to do that. And it was challenged by the Supreme Court. Tawney said that, like, no way you can't do this. But Lincoln stood his ground in his message to Congress on July 4th, 1861. And he said, all the are all the laws but one to go unexecuted and the government itself go to pieces, lest that one be violated. And Lincoln told Congress that he had acted sparingly. But if he had to, he would act decisively in the future to preserve the union. So basically, like, I've only done this in certain areas, but you better believe I will do it everywhere if the need arises. So he did it where it was needed. You know, whether that was right or not is is still controversial. But that was the first area um, where he comes up against the Supreme Court and Tawney argues that it was only Congress that could suspend that, and Lincoln was usurping the role of Congress and the judicial branches of the government. And he warned that Lincoln was on the road to becoming a military dictator. So Lincoln's not like Lincoln's only been president for just a you know a few weeks at this point, and that's what's ta- that's what Tawney is saying about him. Yeah, and I think that. You know the the habeas corpus, and again, we did a whole episode on it. It's, you know, check that out for sure. But you know, this is um, where Tawney and Lincoln kind of go head to head for the first time. And you know, of course, as Lincoln's, I don't even know if I'd say popularity, but role grows at the Civil War. Just the the burden on him and as the office, I think the Supreme Court after that kind of takes a back seat to 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 the presidency just because of the the crisis the country was in. There's there's a couple layers to the habeas corpus argument. Yeah. It's, one is the like, could he, should he? Mm-hmm. But I, I I think that that uh, the big or maybe the bigger issue is that perhaps he over, not not the like yes or no could he or couldn't he have, but like he probably he did it more than he should have. It and, and it was the 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 burden of like to 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 who, which people are we denying it to was. Uh, infringing upon more the national security or, or the cause. I think it was, it became political in nature, which is yeah. certainly a problem. No, I would agree with that. 
So looking then, uh, were there any cases, Mary, that you wanted to talk about specifically? Not any specific cases. I think we can probably move on to the part about the justices and yeah. specifically the appointment of Sam and Chase. Yeah, so just talking quickly about emancipation mm. and I think that that's because Tawny was the chief justice of the United States until 1864. Um, now, the you know 14th Amendment didn't go through until 1865, but I think it's important to note that, that Lincoln's, you know, for many reasons, but I think the Supreme Court had a had part, you know, his opinion on the Supreme Court had to play a role in abolishing slavery through constitutional amendment as opposed to abolishing slavery through law. I think is extremely important because they and Lincoln led the changing of the constitution, amending the constitution so that it could not be, you know, reinterpreted or struck down. If they had passed a law that abolished slavery, that law would have been at risk all the time. You know, if, you know, you, you'd be right back to if you admit one more state that's in favor of enslavement than, than, than another, than, than free, now you might repeal that law. So by actually, actually doing it by constitutional amendment, you eliminate the Supreme Court um, striking it down. Now, the 14th, 15th, 16th Amendment, they've been um, used as precedent and as the, the part of the Constitution that's looked at for civil rights cases ever since, both that have gone in the favor of freedom and, and, and against it. Uh, so it's, it, it is very important, but I think that the fact that the emancipation work was largely done through constitutional amendment shows, shows one, the dedication to it and, and its importance, and also um, realizing that they, they needed to just eliminate the Supreme Court from interpreting it perhaps as unconstitutional. And Tawny probably had a little bit to do with that, because if there was another Tawny, that probably would have happened. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the Supreme Court court justices appointed by Lincoln. Okay. All right. So Lincoln will appoint five justices during his presidency. The last of these being Sam and P. Chase. Um, And he appoints this, he appoints him just after, obviously he waits till after Tawny's death in 1864. But the other one he appoints are Noah Haynes Swain, Samuel Freeman Miller, David Davis, who was one of his friends from Illinois, and Stephen Johnson Field. So Chase is the last one that he's going to appoint in late 1864. And this one came up over the last few weeks because of a comment from Senator Harris that she made during um, a president, her, the vice presidential debate. Lincoln deferred naming a new chief justice until after the election. And there's been a few news articles written about this as well. So I was doing some research about this. And in the book, 1864, Lincoln at the Gates of History by Charles Braceland Flood, he writes that Tawny's death gave Lincoln the opportunity to name a new Supreme, to name a new Supreme Court justice, a permanent position far more prestigious than the other government posts that so many had sought during that election year. Lincoln had the option of giving a justice already on the court the chief justice position and bringing in another man as one of the nine justices or appoint someone not on the court directly as the chief justice. John Hay would write to Nicolay, it is a matter of the greatest importance that Mr. Lincoln has ever decided. So this is a huge thing that Lincoln is thinking upon. Um, Now, as it turns out, uh, Tawny, it was known that he had been sick for a while. 
And in late June of 1864, Lincoln had actually told Chase, yes, you will be the one that is appointed. So that was already like a known thing there. And there, so right after Tawny dies, it's just like after, you know, Ginsburg dies. There's so many that, that come forward. Um, there was chief, so justice Noah J. Swain, he writes to chase to put in a good word for him for Lincoln. David Davis is also seeking the chief justice role as well. And he thinks he's going to get it because he's Lincoln's friend. Edward Bates, who had served on Lincoln's cabinet, is looking for it. Uh, William M. Everts, a Republic lawyer, is also looking for it. Monty Blair, former men- former member of Lincoln's cabinet at this time, also looking for it. But Chase is the is the primary candidate in this case. Um, so he's Lincoln's former Treasury Secretary. Lincoln had a accepted his resignation in June, which is the fourth time that Chase had resigned. And finally, Lincoln's like, fine, you're done. And um, he ends up being obviously the one that Lincoln picks. Um, Charles Sumner would write to Lincoln two days after Tawney's death, reminding the president that he had told Congressman Samuel Hooper that past spring that when Tawney died, he intended to name Chase as his successor. And it's important to know, too, in uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin makes this or, you know, maybe makes a statement, makes this argument, whatever, but like one or maybe the thesis. But like she felt very much. And of course, in 1860, well, in the 19th century, but in 1864, like the president was not the, the assumed nominee by any means, like many, many, many presidents before Abraham Lincoln. um did not get their own party's nomination for a second term. Um, you know, like a, a good example is James Buchanan. You know, he was of the party that had control of the white house and, you know, uh, Pierce didn't get it, didn't get the nomination. Buchanan did and became president. Um, so there were, there were Lincoln did have competition for the nomination of the mm-hmm. Republican party. And his biggest competition was not Sumner. It was chase at that time. And, Kearns Goodwin at least makes the argument, and I think she makes it pretty well, that part of Lincoln's strategy to not have any opposition to his own nomination, specifically from Chase, was to appease Chase with a promise to make him chief justice of the United States. So I think a, a big element of that was so Chase would not run against him because Chase was, at least on paper, a stronger abolitionist or at least had a longer record of being an abolitionist. Um, so Lincoln kind of said, hey, you want to be chief justice and, and Chase's thoughts was, well, like if, if I say yes to this, I'm not going to run for president. And he, you know, he basically accepts that, you know, says that he would do it. Yeah. No, it, it's absolutely a political thing to, to make sure you've got somebody in there to kind of balance out what is going on with slavery and all that, you know, Chase is a known abolitionist. Um, and there was, so that happens like, Chase ends up getting confirmed as the chief justice. And, but as it turns out that it was very political for Lincoln to do that because there was two instances where he confirms his true feelings to one friend. He said he would sooner eat flat irons than to do it. (laughs) And Lincoln had been given a chair made from elk antlers 
And Gideon Wells, Secretary of Navy, wrote in his diary, the president told Democratic Senator Zachariah Chandler of New Hampshire that he would rather have swallowed his buckhorn chair than to have nominated Chase. So there was something going on there personally, but Lincoln was able to rise above that and politically know that Chase was the right person to have in place for that. And Lincoln waits until after the nomination to push the appointment through. Yeah, and that... It's been the big, 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 big piece of conversation with the accuracy, the degree to which Kamala Harris's statement of Abraham Lincoln setting a precedent of waiting. One, you know, we always compare eras, you know, and say like, oh, this is kind of still an issue today or here's where it echoes in history. There are, I think, quite a lot of differences between 1864 and 2020 specifically with this. I think that there is quite a lot of weight to, to those who are saying that that Kamala Harris was a little, I don't think she was misinformed, but maybe overstated it. I don't think Lincoln explicitly said, let's let the people decide. And then I'll appoint um, as much as it was just the timing of it. I mean, things Mm -hmm. moved slower back then. Anyway, um, I don't think he would have been able to ram it through had he even wanted to. No. Um, Anyway. So I, I, I don't know if I, she misspoke or, you know, it's politics. People say stuff like what she said, what she said was true. The last president to do this waited until after the election, and that president was Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. 100% true. That is, on its face, factual. Now, is it the same situation where he chose to wait in order to let the people be heard? Probably not. Probably not. But at the same time, I don't think people really cared as much. I don't think the Supreme Court nominations and appointments took on the same weight as they do now, where, no. like, major things could hinge on it. I don't think the yeah. whole country was, was saying like, no, 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 you do not do let the next president pick. I think it was just assumed like, okay, there's a vacancy, like, you know, you'll appoint it. I think, I think there was much more of an acceptance in those days of we've elected this person for four years and that means four years. And there's no assumption that it's going to be eight. There's no assumption they're even going to run for eight. But he's, you know, he's very much president for four years. And really, this whole conversation, I think, would never have happened had it not been for the Merrick Garland situation in 2016. No, it's nice to see Chase's name brought to light. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And then on top of that, I mean, the the issue that was going to change everything was the outcome of the war, too. So and then being the main thing. And yeah, I don't even know why Harris... Harris should have just kept railing the hypocrisy of the Republicans for uh, the Garland situation. So, but you know, when you could drop Lincoln's name in a debate, hey, they just give us material for our next show. I agree. I agree. And Chase, you know, is a—he's uh, an interesting figure, and we could probably do a whole show on him. Mean, I'm sure we will at some we point. We could probably do a whole show on all of the cabinet members. Wow, there you go. We got ourselves a dozen or like so there's, episodes. Yeah, that's like how many episodes right there? I'm just looking for the Simon Cameron one. The Caleb Smith one's going to be awesome. Oh, God. Simon Cameron gets exiled to Russia, which it's is amazing. amazing. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, but Chase, you know, is I think that, you know, if Seward didn't become... You know, Seward's role, obviously, is huge. And I'm not saying it's overstated. But because of, you know, what he did as Secretary of State, because he was part of the whole assassination plot, um, 
you know, I think Chase sometimes gets overlooked because, you know, he was certainly part of that team of rivals, certainly a candidate, very viable candidate in, in 1860 coming up from the state of Ohio. Um, and very important, very, very, very important figure in the history of the Treasury Department. You know, I think other than Alexander Hamilton, I think you can make a very compelling argument that Salmon Chase was the most important or most influential Secretary of the Treasury ever, other than, of course, the obvious, you know, obviously Alexander Hamilton was, um, you know, and, th- you know, Hit, hit Broadway musicals aside, I think it was still yeah. undeniable that he was the, the most influential. Um, so we're getting close to time. Uh, any other thoughts on Lincoln and the Supreme Court? Oh, I think we had an awesome discussion about it and timely one, too. We hit on some really good points about this, I think. Nick, anything on the Supreme Court? No, but um, I got about 20 minutes of thoughts on neckbeards. Good. All right, so tune in next week for the Rail Splitter episode <laughs> one hundred whatever. War beards. Nick will be well, talking about not... neckbeards. The neckbeard thing is a joke. I, we probably could do a pretty awesome episode on Civil War beards. Yeah, I agree on that. Yeah, we could. Matter of fact, let's just commit to that. Like <laughs> Civil War beard episode coming your way sometime, sometime. in the 2020, 2021 time frame. Yep. Uh, maybe even a crossover episode with our sibling podcast. I was just... just thinking that, that that could be the perfect <laughs> Civil War beard, Civil War hair. Who had wow. the best? If you're rolling your eyes right now, I can, I, I respect that. Yeah. <laughs> but it'll still be an awesome episode. It will be. So, all right, let's get on to our weekly features. Uh, every week we like to highlight a social media post, either from one of our followers or from maybe a bigger media outlet. Um, so this is features called Love the People by the People. Uh, mine, I'm going to start just because mine's kind of stupid. I don't want to say stupid, but it's not. I like to highlight listeners as much as possible, but I'm not this week. Um, I'm just excited that the West Wing, like, whatever bonus thing is coming out today. So I'm excited for, I like Aaron Sorkin. I like the West wing. It's for a uh, get out the vote uh, charity. So all the posts about the West wing, this, uh, this thing might suck. I don't know, but uh, I'm going to watch that tonight and I'm excited for it. So that was my post West wing white house, somewhat very tangentially Lincoln related post. And do we have another of the people by the people? I have one. All right. Let's do okay. It. So mine is from, Dave Taylor, who's been our guest, I think, three times. He's at LIN Conspirators on Twitter. But he had a really positive post the other day. And he said, I remember reading this as a child, and it has always stuck with me. I've never been able to think of a better answer to the meaning of life. Spread happiness and love to those in your life. And it's why we're here. And he has a Peanuts comic um, where... One of them is saying, I think it's Lucy, why do you think we're put here on this earth, Charlie Brown? And Charlie Brown is saying, to make others happy. And I saw that the other day, and it was like, that's awesome. That's exactly what we need to hear right now. So that is, that thank is what you, 2020 Dave. needs. Thank you, yeah, Dave Taylor. Thank you, Dave Taylor, for that. We need more, more joy spread for sure. Yeah. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Nick, what do you got? Well, Civil War Breakfast Club tweeted, Mary did double duty tonight. So she was uh, did our show, but before this, she was uh, on a podcast or something with a bunch of old white guys. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Gary Edelman. <laughs> uh, but yeah, hey, where could people find that? Is it was it live or is it being recorded to go be posted? It's going to be posted eventually on YouTube. Okay, so where would people go? Gary's channel then? Um, no, it's going to be on Civil. So Civil War Roundtable Congress is where it's going to be found once it's posted. But yeah, it was an excellent lecture about Civil War photography given by Gary Edelman. It was really awesome. Oh, okay, so you were there as a li- as a as a listener. No, I was not there lecturing. Oh, no, God, your post makes it look like you were part of the group. No, there. well, we it was a Zoom lecture, so we were in there with uh, him. I got you. But yeah, no, I was not. No, I'm not lecturing. Oh, okay. Then I take that back. <laughs> I thought it was more important than what it was. And I'm just joking. <laughs> but no, the Civil War were round you the table only con- Congress? Were you the only female on a roundtable? Uh, there was two others, I think. Okay, it's okay. Yeah. That's good. That's good to hear. There needs to be more, though. I know. Yeah. No. I'm. I'm. You... Real, I'm realizing, being a podcaster in the Civil War field, like how few females there are doing this. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if podcasting. If I imagine podcasting is probably male dominated. It is. is. It? I don't know. It is. Okay. No, is it something in twenty first century society? Yeah, the valid well, then, point. Uh, yeah, yeah. There we go. <laughs> in the Civil War field, yeah. anyway, it's there's a like there's a lot more male podcasters than there are females. That's for sure. Oh yeah, yeah I, I think mean, it's just, yeah, yeah. So we let's just, uh, yeah. I don't want to mansplain this, so I'm just going to leave it at that. But I'm, I'm, I'm proud. I'm proud that Mary's on our show, and we need to. Oh, thank you. We need to <laughs> amplify that. There's no. This is like every every thought that that, that, that I'm going to mansplain whatever. So. I'm just you're not I'm, mansplaining I'm, trust me all right thank you but i'm proud to have you on the show so thank you as, as i as i mansplain patronize whatever <laughs> i don't mean it I, I promise you my heart is pure he's not mansplaining <laughs> i think he's mansplaining mansplaining wow that's called meta mansplaining wow <laughs> it's a new thing coined on the rail splitter yep. on october 15th 2020 neck beards all right <laughs> neck beards yeah by the way very much a male-dominated field. The, the neck, the neck yeah, no, I, yeah, I'm glad it's a. I'm glad that's a male-dominated field. The, right there. The, the one area that we're fully in support of male dominance, or, yeah. or those who identify as male dominance, neck beards. Yes, um, and I also believe that, uh, like all other male-dominated fields, should be universally rejected. Full beards, maybe even chin beards, neck beards, not so much. And that moves us on. It doesn't move us on, but I'm going to say it does to our last feature, which is This Week in Lincoln, where we point out Abraham Lincoln showing up in an area that's not traditionally a historic or, um, you know, educational academic type area. Hopefully one of you have an example of it this week in Lincoln. What? What? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe, maybe not. Um, Got to be something on Facebook, right? (laughs) So submit to us any of your This Week in Lincoln ideas. I think, you know, between the statue coming down and Kamala Harris's reference to Lincoln, I think mean, those are traditional ways, but we see how how pervasive Lincoln is in our yeah. lives. So. And honestly, I think what John, tattooed historian, said. Yes. That was, like, right there. That's I agree. Goal. I agree. Um, so we'll leave it at that. Oh, Thank you. Go ahead. Hold on. I might have something. This was in the Facebook chat group. I got to open this up. Abraham Lincoln zombie containment vessel. What? It that seems is... a little too on the nose for uh, this weekend, Lincoln. Yeah. 
It looks like a pencil and pen holder right here. You can guys see it? Wow. Oh, that's fucking creepy. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's on pretty. my holiday gift list. Um, so it's like a hollow, it's a zombie Lincoln, like pen holder. Um, he's got like a scar down his face and he's zombified. Um, it looks kind of cool. Definitely a cool, uh, holiday thing. Oh dude, it's got like the brains inside, like the jar. You guys see that? Wow. Dude, this is pretty, uh, heavy committed stuff. I feel like, I feel like Nick, I feel like you don't need to worry about that because I just feel like Curtis has probably already purchased that for you. (laughs) <laughs> this feels like a very much a Curtis Nick's brother Curtis thing to do is to buy that for Nick. He might have even had it designed. Yeah, so there we go. Yeah, that's definitely true. I might be getting this for my birthday or Christmas. So there you go. I do have a Nixon Swap Monster little doll that I got at Comic Con once. Wow, that's really See? creepy, Nick. Please don't <laughs> tell us more. No, it's, not, it's not a doll. I guess I shouldn't say doll. It's a figure. Oh yeah, dude! Collectors would cringe. You called it a doll. It's not a doll. First, it's an action figure. It's a collectible. It's not a doll. It's an action figure. (laughs) It's a a little bit bigger than a Funko Pop without the giant head. Okay, it's a doll then. (laughs) You know what? Fine, it's a doll. I don't care. The good uh, news is, let's just agree that we're happy that the doll slash action figure does not have a neck beard. Yep. So, with that. (laughs) crazy madness we are gonna go ahead and wrap up this week's episode we will be coming back at you next next week so for rail splitter mary and rail splitter nick i am rail splitter jeremy signing off for this weekend reminding you to continue to walk the world with males toward none with charity for all we will see you very soon